I don't get back to my old neighborhood as much as I'd like to, but every time I go there, what strikes me about it is just how different it is from the rest of the world that I occupy. It's probably hard to imagine, but in New York City, public housing often exists on what they call these super blocks. So if you're ever walking through Manhattan, now you sort of go from 91st Street to 92nd Street to 93rd Street, and you have to go through a crosswalk here or there, right? There are cars and other things that cut through it. It's not true for most of New York City housing, and that certainly wasn't true of Wagner, where I grew up. It's basically two big super blocks. Go from 120th Street to 124th Street. Go from Pleasant Avenue, which if you ever watched The Godfather or Carlito's Way, you're familiar with. Old mob neighborhood. But it basically goes from the East River over to First Avenue. Then there's a big major intersection that cuts through First Avenue. And then you get all the people on the other side of it until you get to Second Avenue. It's maybe 10,000 people living just in those small kind of you know, one, one by four blocks. Two of them. And buildings are crowded together, but there's actually a lot of light shining in because it was built in kind of this 1950s style, the tower in the park, which was meant to offer you an opportunity to be able to see in all directions. And so when I was growing up, I was in an apartment that looked out over the East River and at what's now called the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge. It used to be the Triborough Bridge. It connects you to Queens and to Brooklyn. So that part is nice. But if you know anything about the history of New York City public housing, you know that Robert Moses, uh, that he was responsible for the construction of a lot of it and was a deeply racist man who really cared very little for poor people. So my grandmother and I are growing up in this space where there's a lot of light shining in. Yeah. And so there is a sense of hope and optimism because the architecture somewhat presents that. But the buildings are dilapidated and not being repaired. Always often smell of urine, not being cleaned as frequently as they should be. And you're trying to figure out, did the person who created these things intend for you to succeed? It's a question that kind of always lingers because you, many people who live in public housing never see the other side of it. And I was really fortunate that I had my grandmother because she always understood that the world was a much bigger place. We had a bunch of weird things in the apartment, weird by the standards of public housing. So she had a bust of David and a print of Michelangelo's creation. And I used to wonder, what are these things about? Because the only other place I see these things are in museums. And one time I asked her, how do you hold on to these things? She said, one, because they're beautiful. And that's enough. But then she added, because I want you to know that there's a world beyond the place that you live in. That humanity is big, broad, and expansive. And what these things show you is something of what human beings can create at their best. And that's always stuck with me. In fact, much later in my life, I was fortunate enough to win a Rhodes Scholarship and go off to see the Sistine Chapel myself for the very first time. And I remember looking up and seeing Michelangelo's creation for real, for real <laughs> in person and thinking to myself and starting to cry, actually, and thinking to myself, what a special woman she was that she was able to take this young black queer kid in East Harlem and show him the whole world 
from that tiny apartment that wasn't meant to make him feel anything other than discarded. As I think about these things, I'm often looking for opportunities to pour that into other people. That This is a big, bright world. I saw this quote recently. Maybe somebody else could be able to attribute it for me, but I thought it was really beautiful. Um, it's particularly beautiful for someone like me who occasionally deals with depression. Uh, and what the quote essentially said was, whatever else I know, I know that good and bad only occurs in life. And therefore, life is valuable because it gives you access to the good. And that was amazingly clarifying for me. In fact, it felt so related to the things that my grandmother would show me. That was, in spite of your circumstances, it's only life that gives the good. It's only impossibility that you find triumph. But those things were not always apparent, <laughs> sad to say. I'm creating a uplifting picture, but life, life was difficult at times. Um, my grandmother had narrowly barely survived colon cancer before I was born. And so she lived quite a difficult life for most of my childhood uh, where she increasingly lost her sight. And this was hard for a woman who loved to read, but she also um, lived with colostomy bags and was poor and couldn't really afford things that she needed so much. So and I don't often say this, that at a pretty young age um, I would go into the pharmacy and other grocery stores and would steal for her because it was the only way to make ends meet. Uh, I wasn't, you know, not that I would cast dispersions on someone else, but I wasn't actually interested in any other material thing other than seeing that she do well. But the fact that I had to do those things, I was alert to at a very early age that I was being forced into a situation that was going to make life difficult for me. Because here I was talented, for sure. I mean, I literally went to a school that was called the Talented and Gifted School in East Harlem. <laughs> as, if, as if we needed to know, but you had to test in, and we were literally labeled Talented and Gifted. So I knew that much about myself. I knew at least that society was telling me that. But here I was having to figure out how it was we were going to deal with roach infestation when we couldn't afford raid. So I'd steal the raid. How it was we were going to make sure that my grandmother didn't have to reuse colostomy bags, which, as you can imagine, is gross. So I went ahead and I stole those things. I can't remember ever stealing anything for myself. It was always just to try and make us whole, to create some sense of decency and humanity. And so at the very first moment that I had the opportunity to earn some money, I earned as much as I could, which wasn't very much, <laughs> unfortunately. But I went in the summer youth and earned as much as I could. And I would um, give that money to my grandmother as often and as frequently as I could. Uh, and the way she repaid me, well, it's the way that she always repaid me, was by telling me stories, reminding me of the things that she knew that she used to be able to read, pointing out a book on the shelf that she could no longer consume herself and saying, you should look into that, and whether it was the Tales of King Arthur or Greek mythology or Stephen King. She loved Stephen King. In fact, I'm still a huge Stephen King fan because of her. She used to tell me how Stephen King was so creative that she'd look at her ashtray and say, he could just look at this ashtray and start to tell you a story just from that alone. I think she wanted me to be a writer. <laughs> she was really a beautiful person. And I remember that the greatest gift I've ever been given in life 
I did this program at Harvard for John Kenneth Galbraith. It's called the John Kenneth Galbraith Scholars. It's a short four-day program introducing you to the PhD program they have up there. And that's not the most relevant part. Most relevant part is there was a meeting with, a, I guess he was an educational economist, Roger Ferguson. And he talked about the things that you could do with young kids, young low-income kids, that would increase their likelihood of success. They included things that you could imagine, like cooking with them and reading to them and encouraging them, et cetera. I mean, some commonplace things, but there were about five, six or seven of them. But I'm traveling back to Logan Airport. And in Logan, I call my grandmother, as I was wont to do. And I call her and I say, Grandma, you won't believe this. But everything that they said you could do to make a child's life successful if they grew up like I grew up, you did. Each and every one. And that was the last time I ever talked to her. But I'm really grateful for having had that opportunity. Because if it weren't for her interventions, uh, something like this podcast would never be possible. So this is for her. you know and trust is now Angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember Angie's list is now Angie and we're here to get your job done right get started at Angie.com that's A-N-G-I or download the app today Mark it down in the history books. Donald Trump has had a good day in front of a court. It is miraculous. After having lost to E. Jean Carroll in the defamation trial and owing her over nearly $100 million, and then subsequently losing before the D.C. Circuit and his claims of presidential immunity for various acts occurring while he was president, we find Donald Trump before the Supreme Court battling for his political life, attempting to stay on the Colorado ballot, uh, having been barred based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And actually, contrary to what many of us thought, none of the justices seem to be buying Colorado's arguments. Uh, starting first and primarily with Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, a reliable liberal force on the court, of course, the newest justice, who really just did not believe that Section 3 was meant to encompass the president of the United States. Moving on beyond Justice Jackson, there was Justice Elena Kagan, who basically said, what right does Colorado have to decide this case for the rest of the nation? In other words, if, in fact, Colorado were to say that candidate Trump could not appear on their primary ballot, would it not be the case that no state would be able to have President Trump on their ballot? Justice Kagan thought that that was a problematic uh, line of reasoning, and that continued throughout the oral arguments. There were some more traditional sets of arguments coming from folks like Justice Thomas, who basically said, how is it that a state could bar a federal candidate, particularly considering the history of the 14th Amendment? 
Uh, Justice John Roberts held a similar line of attack. Probably the most conservative line of attack, though, came from Justice Brett Kavanaugh, not surprisingly, who said, we've never done anything like this. In fact, it has always been the case that we've assumed that Congress has had to legislate from Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in order for it to take effect. And why would we depart from that standard now if that was both the historical understanding relative to the time when the 14th Amendment was passed and it held sway for decades thereafter? But why do I say that this was all still rather surprising? Well, if you look at the text of the 14th Amendment and Section 3 in particular, it in many ways seems tailor-made for someone like Donald Trump. What do I mean by that? Well, the relevant text says, no one shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of the president and vice president or, and this is the critical piece here, hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. If, and this is the re another relevant clause, that person has previously sworn as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution, but then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the federal government. I know that's a whole lot, so we're just going to break it down piece by piece. But the first piece, which had been subject a major subject of the oral arguments, was, is President Trump even covered by the clause? And as I was saying about Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, her argument was, it doesn't say president or vice president, other than referring to electors of the president and vice president. And why would Congress have left such a large omission? Well, it turns out if you go back and look at the original arguments around Section 3, that issue was raised. There was a senator from the state of Maryland who was not sympathetic to the idea of keeping insurrectionists out of the government. So he was a Confederate sympathizer who said, you don't say president or vice president. Doesn't that mean that they're excluded? And the senator from Maine, who had been one of the major proponents of Section 3, said, don't you see the catch-all clause at the end there that says, any officer under the United States, that means any officer under the United States, including the president and the vice president. So one would think that that argument would be sufficiently laid to rest. But again, we're continuing with this particular strand of textual interpretation that comes out of our Supreme Court that ignores what it was that people were thinking and doing at the time and looks at the text out of context, if you can imagine. So Justice Brown Jackson sort of wasn't buying it, but you proceed through the rest of the clause. Let's assume that you are buying it and I was buying it that no, President Trump would be included under that piece. Well, then you continue on and you say, has he sworn an oath to the Constitution? Yes, we all bore witness to that. Uh, when he was elected president. So we know that to be true. And then finally, you have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Now, I know from actually moots of the arguments that that happened to be a large portion of what Colorado's council prepared for. Was it an insurrection? Was it an insurrection? How would we know? And did Donald Trump engage in insurrection? But that played very a very small part in the overall oral arguments. It seemed as though the justices, and I can imagine why, did not want to touch the idea of whether or not an insurrection had taken place, uh, threatening our very constitution and the functioning of our federal government. But of course, we all know that's what happened. <laughs> I mean, the justices aren't unaware. One friend actually asked me, do we know where the justices were when the Capitol was being attacked? And I assumed that they were at the court. And so bearing witness to this, like the rest of us, 
seeing that the rule of law was being trampled upon by insurrectionists. So it seems clear that an insurrection took place, and the only real question is whether or not Donald Trump participated in it. But again, the court seemed not to want to touch that at all. And the only explanation I can give as to why the court didn't want to touch this at all is because their approval ratings are in the toilet. They are at the lowest they have been in modern history, and they could not take the risk of writing an opinion that set off either side of the country. If it were the case that you disqualified Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot and therefore, as I said, set off a chain reaction of litigation around the country to determine whether or not he was disqualified from every other ballot, surely one half of the country would be upset. Heading in the other direction, if they say that he is permitted to be on the ballot, but seem to have engaged in insurrection, that is, the clause doesn't cover the president, but he did engage in insurrection, so a kind of fact-finding halfway, you can imagine what the rest of us would do. Those of us who watched that day feel as though he instigated a crime in the midst of the peaceful transfer of power, the first time that that has happened in our nation's history. So the rest of us would be upset. As a consequence, what are they trying to do? Duck and cover beneath the text. They're trying to read it in as many different ways as possible to reach the conclusion that yes, he is permitted to continue on in his quest to be reelected president of the United States. And the question that that leaves for me is, did the court do its job? Is it on the verge of doing its job? And at one level, having been a practicing appellate lawyer myself, I see what it is they were up to. You really can parse the text in a number of different ways using tools of what they call statutory interpretation. That's just a fancy way of saying a way of reading the text and understanding it and reach the conclusion, maybe not today. This doesn't really cover Donald Trump. But the Supreme Court's fundamental responsibility in our constitutional system is to keep the guardrails on. That's it, actually. <laughs> I know it gets more complicated than that from year to year. We hear about this case or that case, and we think the Supreme Court is really wading into our politics, and all that's true. Anybody who knows anything about me and the Alliance for Justice will know that we often are problematizing the role of the court. But on this, we agree. It's to keep the guardrails of democracy in place. And so by that measure, is the court doing its job? And it seems to me, no, it isn't. Because it's reading a constitutional amendment as though it were a statute. What am I saying there? Okay, it's sort of like when you've got the general rules built out. That's the constitution, right? General rules. Those of you who've played Monopoly, you sort of know the rules are a little fudged at the end. Like, you know, when you land on free parking, do you get the money that's under free parking? That's how we play in my house. <laughs> but there are general rules, and then there are specific rules. And those are more like statutes. Those are more like the laws passed by Congress. And you would think the laws passed by Congress, yeah, you want to read those strictly with a bit more scrutiny. Why? Because the only bodies participating in passing those laws for the entire nation are the two houses of Congress, and then the president can sign off on it. 
So you've got different layers of government reviewing a law and passing it on. But when you have a constitutional enactment, baby, that's all of us, actually. When you look through how a constitutional amendment has to be passed, it's not just through both houses of Congress, it's by super majorities of the houses of Congress. It's then taking it to the states and getting them to ratify it, right? National conversation taking place. And so then the kind of narrow Scrivener's rules that apply to legislation seem as though they should be relaxed because there is obviously a broader purpose at work. So take us back to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. What's the broader purpose at work? There were moments in the argument where that was being highlighted. So Justice Roberts, for instance, said, well, wouldn't it be weird to think that the states have the ability to limit federal candidates when, in fact, the whole war was fought over limiting state power? Right. The South had rebelled. The Confederacy had rebelled because it thought we have states rights. It's superior, equal or superior to what the federal government can impose. And 14th Amendment largely is cleaving all sorts of state power, supporting federal power. So why is it that the states would get to say who gets to be on a federal ballot? I thought that was a good argument, actually. Good structure. Right. But then if you get back to, okay, what's the fundamental purpose of the amendment? What were people concerned about at the time? And when you look back into the history, what you realize is that they were concerned about the former Confederates coming back to power in any number of ways. That includes becoming representatives, becoming senators, becoming electors. And there was a plausible fear that Jefferson Davis could be a candidate for national office, including for the presidency. And they were trying to prevent that possibility unless they removed the disability. That is, Congress, by a two-thirds vote, said Jefferson Davis or someone like him can run. And so my basic view is mm, the Supreme Court has swung and missed on this one. We haven't gotten the opinion yet. Still waiting to see it. But they had a real opportunity to do their job, hold true to the guardrails of democracy, and to read a constitutional amendment as something, a promise that we made to ourselves, the entire nation made to itself, that it would never again elect an insurrectionist. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. While we're doing this podcast throughout, I'm going to give you some recommended reading. I'm always kind of looking around for what are some interesting takes that present a problem in a different way that might illuminate some of the real difficulties that we're having. And I happened to find one of those recently in The Intelligencer. It's by Gail Cornwall, and it's called How Rich or Not Do You Need to Be to Get into an Ivy League? So as you can tell, this is already going to be an article about elite people struggling over elite things. <laughs> right, so rich people riching and trying to figure out how to get their kids to be more rich. But nevertheless, I thought it was illuminating. So let me just give you some of the high points. 
So they basically want to talk about a group of people who make between 150 and call it $250,000. And the punchline is this. If you want to get your kids to go to an Ivy League school, they call them Ivies Plus. So the regular Ivies Plus Stanford, Duke, MIT, or U Chicago, uh, you need to make more than that 250 or you need to make less than that 150 because if you get caught in that middle space you are the least likely of all groups to get into those schools now obviously plenty of kids from those groups are getting into schools but you're the least likely relative to other groups um and that's sort of fascinating isn't it because you would think that the natural trajectory would be the more money you make the more you can invest in your children's educations the more likely they are to do well because they've gotten tutoring and they've been able to play expensive sports like squash or lacrosse anything that requires a bunch of equipment and facilities and um, that they're going to be able to go on debate trips and you can pay for everything right so you're just kind of clicking up but it turns out with regard to these sets of schools that's not true and there's pretty good research to explain why. It's because the top 1% are overrepresented in admissions for a variety of reasons, one of which includes legacy admissions. Um, and the fact that their kids, the top 1%, for some reason, are often ranked exceptionally high in terms of the non-academic categories. Those are qualities about leadership and character. <laughs> uh, I call BS, but that's what's happening, essentially. And so the article is kind of playing with this idea that somehow there's kind of this opportunity gap that falls out when you get to the 90th percentile, which I know, I know, I know is entirely bizarre. And I say this both as somebody coming from where I come from, as I said, the projects of East Harlem and who touched base in a bunch of these institutions, Brown and Yale among them. So I get both sides of it, actually, that there are real resources that are distributed in these institutions that do not exist in other places and disproportionate privilege. And in fact, the article says, hey, if you get your kids into one of these schools, it's not the case that their average income is more likely to increase. That seems to be consistent across the space, but it is more likely that your children could become uber wealthy or uber famous. That is disproportionately indexed for these Ivy League plus schools. So again, this article kind of, for me, was a, I don't know, a little light in the valley, because all we've been talking about as of late on the heels of students for fair admissions is diversity, DEI, how it is that certain groups of people are being privileged relative to others based on their race. But when you look at these categories, it makes very clear that actually the folks who are kind of doing the best in every system that we seem to create are the uber wealthy the top 1% of society is disproportionately represented in these institutions that disproportionately concentrate academic privilege and disproportionately lift their students into the higher rungs of society. But I hear so very little about that. I mean, there have been honest efforts on the left, and I think even more broadly towards the center, to say, hey, we should be looking at legacy admissions, that doesn't actually seem to serve any academic purpose to make sure that, I don't know, John Alexander, the first, the second, the third, the fourth and the fifth all attended Harvard University <laughs> at the expense of the rest of us. But somehow we end up focusing on racial privilege in particular, alleged racial privilege. 
And part of that I get because it's in the Constitution. It's a cleavage in our history that's well documented. There were actual affirmative action policies that were first created by government and then flowed out into the rest of society. So that makes sense. But the things that this article is actually raising, I mean, this is, again, the sort of rich against the wealthy in this article. So let's just treat that as our our opportunity set to figure out this problem. Well, there it's not actually racial privilege that's playing any role or racial, any sort of racial distributions. It's just merely age old hereditary privilege (laughs) carrying itself out decade after decade, generation after generation. So where's the public outcry about this? I mean, I thought we lived in a society where we wanted equality of opportunity to be vastly distributed. And there's a a really compelling case that um, is cited in the article that, I mean, I don't find it gut-wrenching, but it is bizarre. So there's allegedly a student who had a 1560 SAT, and I'm assuming that's on the 1600 scale because that's the only way it matters, (laughs) on the 1600 scale, Um, and a 4.1 GPA from the school she attended, and she did not get into one of the top 50 ranked institutions on U.S. News and World Report. Now, again, I want to trouble this a little bit. We're probably missing some data. It's probably the case that she might have gotten into some places and not others, and maybe the family couldn't ultimately afford to pay because, you know, Yes, you make between one hundred and fifty and $250,000, and that's a lot of money. But if you're going to a school that's $50,000 a year, you see how those things might not add up exactly. But in any case, she kind of fell out of the top 50. And they use this as not necessarily the premier case study of what's happening among this group, but just as an example of how there's a gap. And so um, I'm looking at that person and thinking, well, who should that person be mad at? The DEI administration? (laughs) No, that doesn't make any sense. Who they should be most frustrated with are the legacy admits if they wanted to get into one of these Ivy Plus schools. Now, the article goes on, I think it's super helpful to say a bunch of these kids are getting into NYU and John Hopkins and uh, Washington University and St. Louis and Williams College and so forth, right? They are not suffering. But again, privilege is being increasingly aggregated among the Ivy League schools and a few others. And those benefits are disproportionately going to legacy admissions and people who play weird sports. <laughs> I just call them weird sports because you got to have a lot of money to pay them. And um, crowding out kids who otherwise have had, yes, every advantage and every opportunity, but just are not wealthy. So their grandparents, as one person put it, can't afford to buy a building in their old age. I mean, that's actually what's happening in our society. And somehow, We've gotten twisted and turned around to believe that the problem is that the black kid or the Latino kid or the Asian kid somehow didn't get admitted or got admitted on this, that or the other standard. When what this data is really showing us is that it is us, the 99 percent against the 1 (laughs) percent. We actually are being crowded out based on their wealth and privilege and access and So far as I can tell, legacy admissions serves no educational advantage whatsoever. We're going to talk more about DEI policies in future episodes because obviously it's something that's going to consume our society for a while. And there's a lot to be said about it, so I don't want to go into it right now. But let me just say this. It is a reasonable educational objective to say that what I'm trying to do is develop someone's potential. That is, 
I take someone who may have not had many resources, but it performed exceptionally well in that context. I bring them into a context where they have more resources than they have had previously and see whether or not I can close the gap between where they are and what their potential is, as opposed to taking someone who's had all the resources in the world, did very well in that context, is going to go into another institution with all the resources in the world, do very well in that context, but there's not as much of a gap to close. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Chris Matthews is back on MSNBC at our National Conversation. That's right, Chris Matthews of Hardball. For those of you who remember that MSNBC show that was hosted at 6 p.m. normally, uh, Chris Matthews was the old curmudgeonly white guy with a liberal perspective, liberal bend. He had worked for Tip O'Neill. And I saw him on Morning Joe recently. Apparently, he's doing kind of national correspondent work on behalf of MSNBC going around the country and largely, it seems, listening to Trump rallies, which I found surprising as a beat for someone like him. But he said something super interesting to me. He said that he was in New Hampshire right during the New Hampshire primaries, and he was in a section of the state I wasn't familiar with, so the name doesn't come to mind, but Trump is apparently holding rallies all around states, just like he did in 2016. He wants to make sure everybody has the opportunity to participate. So Chris Matthews says he's there, and this is an exact quote. I've never seen so many poor people in my life. And I thought, okay, where's this going? This is a strange way to begin. And he said, it actually made me ashamed to be middle class. I was like, what is he getting after exactly? And I have been thinking about this for a couple of weeks now and just reading about the nature of the campaign that's going on. And one of the things he also said at that time was, this is going to be a campaign about anger. People are angry in this country. And I didn't quite get what he meant, but it's starting to come home to me, I think. I'm, I'm curious what you all think about this, but... I think what he was after, talking about the sense that Trump is doing rallies all around the state so everybody feels included, and that he had never seen so many poor people in his life and he felt ashamed to be middle class, I think what he was chipping at was actually something about belonging. We're reading all about the despair that exists in the country, particularly after the COVID pandemic, space of loneliness, the extent to which people feel rudderless. There's just a lack of motion in people's lives. They feel detached from reality. We see that with the rise of conspiracy theories. And I think what he was actually after is that Trump makes people feel included. Why is this relevant to thinking about where we are at this moment? Well, I have been thinking that maybe that holds the key to where we are at this particular moment in our national history. That what's actually going on 
is that there is a level of detachment. Our bonds are frayed. We don't actually believe that we're looking out for one another. And let me make put a not too fine a point on this. There was a Politico article or something along those lines that basically was about a guy named Ted Johnson, also in New Hampshire. And he said something that you should hear. He said, and trust me, now this is somebody, mind you, who voted for Obama twice, then voted for Trump and was thinking about not voting for Trump, but then decided to vote for Trump. So this is a weird voter. Yes, not probably typical, but I think what he said is relevant to all of us. He said, and trust me, the guy's a pig. He's a womanizer. Arrogant, they blank out, a-hole. But I need somebody that's going to go in and lead. I need somebody that's going to take care of the average guy. And the reporter asked, is taking care of the average guy the same thing as breaking the system? He said, yes, because they're all in it for themselves. And if you break the system, what does that look like? The reporter asked. He said, accountability. That's the anger piece of it. But I actually want to refocus it a bit. Because I do think that something about what Ted Johnson is saying is right. There is no longer a connection between the elites in our society and everyday working people. How do I want to exemplify that? I'm going to use myself because I've come from a place where I was working class and I now exist in a place of Washington, D.C., where if I never meet another middle class family in my life, I'll be all right. <laughs> it's like just different, totally different. When I think about the Trump presidency and the Obama presidency, if I ask myself about my material circumstances, not every concern I have, but my material circumstances, can I say that they got worse because of Donald Trump, a person who I oppose politically? The answer is no. I can't say that. I'd be lying to you. My material circumstances did not change because Donald Trump was elected. Then you get Joe Biden elected. Have my material circumstances changed? No, not dramatically, actually. But there's a lot of hurt taking place in the country going on based on whether or not Trump or Biden or Obama is in office. Now, I have my beliefs about exactly who's hurting. You know, when President Trump is in office, I believe more people are hurting. But if you believe the opposite, it's still the case that a certain strata of America's elite, of America's population, rather, does not feel the same things that the rest of the country feels when we swing from one sets of policies to the next. And that's a problem. There's a term for this linked fate, linked fate. It usually comes up in the context of black politics. So I'll just give you a concrete example. When president Obama says Trayvon Martin could have been my son. It's an example of linked fate. It's the idea that what happened to Trayvon Martin could happen to me or someone close to me. And it's a persistent feature of black life in America, regardless of the actual circumstances. And I usually try to problematize this term a lot, but from, but from a psychological perspective, it is true that when I see George Floyd be murdered in public, I do think that it could be me or someone like me, someone I know personally, family member, a good friend, could find themselves in that circumstance. That's linked fate. And the question for all of us at this moment that the Ted Johnsons raise, that the people at the rally in New Hampshire raise, 
is to what extent are our political elites linked to us? To what extent do they experience the same hardships that the rest of us experience? Because if they don't, there's a fundamental flaw in democracy, and that gets to why people like Ted Johnson are calling for chaos. Because chaos sweeps up all of us. There's no protection from chaos. If Donald Trump goes in there and decides to start World War III, none of us are protected. In fact, <laughs> the most vulnerable among us might be the ones on the coast because it's easier for a missile to hit the coast than to hit the interior of the country. None of us are safe. And you say, well, that's bizarre. That's twisted. I mean, why, why would anybody want to wish harm on anyone else? Well, these are people who are hurting and who are in fear. Now, I know there's going to be a bunch of stuff that says, well, Ted Johnson's not the typical voter. There are other kinds of voters, right? It doesn't represent the minority communities of our country. But we do see slowly but surely various cleavages of different minority communities starting to find President Trump's arguments appealing, starting to find the chaos theories appealing. And the reason I'm offering for that, or at least opening up the conversation is because they don't think anybody's looking out for them. Now, I already know the argument that you are going to make that you're thinking about right now. They're choosing Donald Trump. <laughs> He's their savior. He's the person who's going to make them feel included. How twisted is that? Going back to the quote, right? He's a pig. He's a womanizer. He's arrogant. How could it possibly be the case that they chose Donald Trump? which I can only say, have you never been in love with somebody who wasn't good for you? <laughs> really? Never been in love with somebody who wasn't good for you. If that's the case, I mean, you're the outlier, right? The country has fallen in love with somebody who is not good for them. At least half the country has. And that's totally explicable because politics is not somehow about numbers and arithmetic and carefully worded proposals. It's about affect of how you present an affection. And so Donald Trump's messages may not resonate for me, but they are resonating for lots and lots of people around this country who feel forgotten, feel as though they're not heard, who feel as though the system as a whole is not responding to them as it should be in a democracy. I want to go back to Ted Johnson. He had another line. He's a wrecking ball. Everybody's going to say Trump is divisive, he said, and that he's going to split the country in half. He looked at me, quote, we got it. And the reporter says, it's what the Ted Johnsons of the world want. Back to that chaos theory. If we're going to suffer, everybody has to suffer. Now, this to me explains why he voted for Barack Obama to begin with. Stay with me. Okay. On the one hand, Trump is offering universal suffering, potentially. <laughs> he quotes it differently, but it's a chaos theory. Well, hope and change were also a theory of unification. We're going to bring all of us together. All of us get to come along in this new America, this new process of recognizing our fundamental equality, of reinvigorating the middle class, and so forth and so on. The Ted Johnsons of the world were persuaded by that argument, that there was somebody whose fate was linked to theirs. Yes, he might be out ahead, leading the pack. There might be a great distance between them. But ultimately, he was looking out for the person in the back of the race. 
that ability to unify, I mean, you'll remember there was Amy Klobuchar's great line in the presidential primaries. It was often used, but it was perfect for her for the debate at the time. She said, quoting FDR, when FDR died, apparently they were taking his casket by a man. The man was weeping and someone said, did you know him? He said, no, but he knew me. That's linked fate. No, but he knew me. Many people in the country at this point feel as though nobody knows them. And that's a problem.